my name is Johan Norberg and today is August 17th of 2018 and I'm here with Norman, I'm going to actually use my full name, Norman John Erickson. Uh, at the Central Library for the Our Streets, Our Stories project at the Brooklyn Public Library. So what's your Brooklyn story? Well, as I was saying, I've sort of have a double set of stories. I've been working here in the Brooklyn Public Library, Central Library, since June 12th, 1989. And I've never left the building. I've been in all the different departments. My family emigrated to Brooklyn prior to the consolidation. Consolidation in New boroughs of New York City was 1898. My family came here before then, when it was still the city of Brooklyn. And they settled in the Bay Ridge area, which at that time was a Scandinavian neighborhood. It was predominantly Norwegian. My family comes from Norway. One line, most of the lines of it, I do have a German line that comes from Württemberg, Germany. That's my grandfather, Dengler, Johannes Heinrich. Um, but the, most of my family is Norwegian. Like I said, they settled in Bay Ridge. Uh, great, my great-grandfather, Christopher Severin Larsen, like I said, I don't remember if he's from Oslo or Bergen, but his wife, Laura Lea, comes from Stavanger. And when my parents went to visit the family back on their 25th wedding anniversary, they went to Stavanger. My parents were married in 1957. And my mother said, oh, let me look up some relatives. There's probably no, you know, let me see if there's anybody here. There were nine pages of Leia's in the Stavanger telephone book. She's like, well, that's not going to help. <laughs> and she actually did go to, there's a park in, in the city uh, that where the family homestead, the one my great-grandmother's Larson's house was, the house she was born in. Uh, it's no longer there. It was uh, burned down during the occupation, of, during the war. Um, but my father's family, there's still most of them in Norway. But like I said, with the Larsons, we can go on, if you want, we can go visit them. They're here, still in Brooklyn. They're in Greenwood Cemetery. <laughs> That's always my big joke. You want to go visit my relatives? They're down the block. You know? I pulled that story on people once here. Um, but my, my great-grandfather uh, and his wife and his mother and my grandmother, Dangler, and my great grand and my grandfather Dangler are all buried in Greenwood, and I joke about that's where I'm going. Yeah. And everybody's like, "That's a strange, disgusting thing." But it's a cool cemetery. <laughs> yeah, if you ever get a chance, go there on those tours. As a kid, for me, Greenwood was the annual visit the dead relatives joke. My grandmother was one of those things. My grandmother always did. We came into Brooklyn around the holiday time. We first went to Staten Island, where my father, uh, Norman, uh, my father Norman Ingolf Erickson, where his parents, Einar and Inga Erickson, are buried in a cemetery called um, Ocean View, which at one time was called Valhalla. It was a very, it was yes, it was a, it was a Scandinavian Lutheran cemetery at that point, and they're buried over there. So we would go visit them in Staten Island, then we would come over here to Greenwood visit the Larsons, and uh, my grandfather Dangler was in there, was buried there at that time. And then we would go to Bay Ridge, go grocery shopping, at the, when Bay Ridge at that time was, was between the 1960s into the 70s, when it was still a very thriving Scandinavian community. We would go grocery shopping at a couple of the stores to get certain things like lingonberries and other groceries we couldn't get out on the island. And then we would buy a block of lutefisk 
which is a disgusting, vile, <laughs> it's desiccated codfish that's dried, salted, and soaked in lye. I love your looks and your face, yes. I've never eaten it, and I never will. Um, <laughs> we would buy it from my great aunt Caroline's mother, Mrs. Olson, who was also uh, is Norwegian from here, and lived here in, in Brooklyn at one point. And she was living with her daughter in um, Wanta on the family farmstead, uh, which was owned by the Dangler family. And so we would buy the lutefisk and put it in the back of the car. And then we would go and have dinner with my cousin Laura for the day and spend the day visiting with her. Um, her, Laura Krudner, her name actually I did put search in on the uh, Brooklyn Daily Eagle. And I found my cousin Laura attending a ladies' luncheon down in Bay Ridge. Both of her husbands, she had two, were in the food importing business. I have not done much research on the Lars, on the Krudners. I really need to. My mother did a lot of research on the family, and right now all those papers are buried in my attic somewhere. <laughs> I know where. Um, but the that was my you know fun thing was going to so Greenwood at that point you only could get in there if you had a family plot there. You had to show an ID, a pass at the door. And when my grandmother died, my mother inherited the plot. And now I have the paperwork, and I still have the original paperwork signed by my great-grandfather when he bought the burial plot for his mother. And I have my grandmother's pass. It's really fun. You know, these are old, old vintage documents. In fact, I have to make, Natiba's been after me to make copies for her to add to the Brooklyn collection. Um, I have a lot of crazy pieces that I turn up that I find for the Brooklyn collection. But by us, the, the Larsons and the Leahs were here in Brooklyn, the Grudners. Um, my co- I have family, my cousins Helen and Irene, both grew up in Bay Ridge, and there's a, in the middle of Bay Ridge is this, when you walk down, there's all the Scandinavian stores at that point, the names, then we had the leaf, the Sventi Mai Parade, which went down Fifth Avenue to leave Erickson Park, and it still does it. My son, I'm a member of Loyal, Sons of Lo- Loyal Lodge, Sons of Norway Lodge in uh, St. James, and they still march down the parade. And when you walk around Bay Ridge, you'll still see the remnants of the Scandinavian community. The church, uh, you'll see some of the old churches. The hospitals are still down there. The uh, school, you'll see some of the old names on the schools and things of that nature. But the, the fun of the neighborhood though is, like I said, in New York City, the city changes, it evolves. And usually the routine is it's about three generations. A group of immigrants come in, they settle into a neighborhood. In Scandinavians, we ended up in Bay Ridge, mostly because it was the waterfront. And we're Scandinavian, most of us were in connected to the water because of the, the, the seacoast and the fjords and everything. My great grandfather was a cod fishing, owned a cod fishing vessel. He sailed out of New York Harbor and sailed up to the, the uh, Grand Banks outside of Newfoundland and brought home cod. <laughs> <laughs> And that actually, that sailing, that area was fished dating back into the 1580s. The Spanish and the Portuguese were the first to discover those, the, the Grand Banks. And so Bay Ridge, like I said, was most of the people connected either with their fishing industries, so they sailed out of here. Um, the grandfather Larson's Fun, I, was, I always call him my grandfather because my mother always referred to him as that way. So it's really, it's technically, he's my great-grandfather. Uh, but I 
but I grew up with that in my head, calling him grandfather. I never met them. Okay. They had all, they had, he had died before the war, the Second World War, I should say. And my great-grandmother died uh, sometime in the late 40s or early 50s, I really don't recall. I never met my grandfather Dangler either. He passed away before my parents had even met each other. Did people speak Norwegian? My great, yes, my yeah. grandfather, was my, my, my mother told me was that my grandfather Dengler, who was uh, Johannes Heinrich Dengler, he was born here in the United States. His family emigrated to the U.S. and he, his, his ancestor, well, it was also Johannes Heinrich, emigrated from Württemberg, Germany in the 1860s. And, yes, and the original Johannes Heinrich did enlist in the American, and the military and fought in the American Civil War. I did have in my hands his original pension, his original military enlistment paperwork, and according to my great uncle Peter Dangler, which was one of my my grandfather's brothers, who wrote down the memories of the original Johannes. Johannes supposedly had a military pension, was a cavalry and was a cavalry officer, and had a medical pension. Well, none of it was true. He fought. He was an infantryman, and he was in the 67th New York. And he deserted. And according to the documents, it said last piece of the, deserted living on farm in Queens. Family farm in Queens is now Aqueduct Raceway. Because as Aqueduct expanded, they bought the lands around it. So Johannes, so the family went from, the Danglis went from Queens to Wantaw, which is in Nassau County. But Nassau County doesn't exist until 1900. Because those are the towns that did not vote to become part of consolidation of New York City. I said, I have my family is very convoluted around here. So uh, the Danglers were down there. So we found it was very funny with the, that he did not, he, he made a lie. And all his grandsons, my Uncle Pete said, well, we kind of figured it was a bullshit artist anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm trying to, just trying to remember the whole family. Like I said, my family is very strange and convoluted. Yeah. My grandmother Dangler, Cecilia Ida May, Dangler. I was my mother's mother. My mother was Lucille. Um, she was born here in Brooklyn. I guess her parents, the Larsons, lived here. And then she ended up marrying a German farmer and moving to um, Brooklyn, uh, to uh, Wanto. But my grandfather, Dangler, spoke German because he was a member of the German Lutheran Church. But he also had the ability to learn languages. My grandmother, Larson, spoke Old Norse the old Norwegian. Yeah. And they would communicate, from what my mother told me, they would communicate together, each other, in a combination of, my grandfather talked to her in German, and she would answer him in the Old Norse. And they understood each other. I don't know how. <laughs> now, Old Norse still exists. It's Icelandic. Yeah. My friend Linda Gunderson, who, a uh, nice Romanian Jewish girl who married a Norwegian, minister's son. Uh, Linda actually does read, write, and speaks the language and has an Icelandic typewriter, which was, was the weirdest looking thing, the, the strange letters. Um, but other than that generation, my, grand, my father, uh, Norman Erickson, his father was born in Norway and immigrated to the U.S. and my grandfather Erickson said that I'm now an American, so therefore I will only speak English. And he did not teach his sons the language. 
But this was the attitude of, the, of the, many of the immigrant groups coming into America in during the periods of the Great Migration. And my grandfather Erickson emigrated from Norway, had a job working for International Telephone and Telegraph in St. Petersburg, Russia. And then somehow got from there to New York. We don't really know that much how he got there. He, used to, he was an industrial arts teacher at Stuyvesant High School. And one of my high school art teachers was one of his students. Very strange. Uh, my grandmother Dangler worked in downtown Brooklyn. Her first job was at a department store called NAMS, which was down on Fulton Street. And she also, that was back when Fulton Street was our shopping district here in Brooklyn. My cousins Helen and Irene grew up in Brooklyn, in Bay Ridge. They married two Irishmen. Because in the middle of Bay Ridge was an Irish community. <laughs> and they were laughing because when I got this job here in the library in 1989, my cousins Helen and Irene thought it was very funny. They're like, you're coming back. Uh, my cousin Laura, who lived here in Brooklyn, she was the last of the family to move out. She moved out in the mid-1970s. Like I said, she had two husbands. They were in the food importing business. Uh, Rudy, again, I never met either of them. Uh, but her, one of them was, it was very fun, because it was father and son. <laughs> Rudy, her second husband, uh, and his father both invested in lots of property. All of her. And that was one of the things many of the immigrants in coming to the United States did, was when you got money, you bought property. And my cousin Laura's boyfriend, better known in the family as the border, my uh, Hartman Yitter, Y T T E R. I always knew him as my uncle Hart. Uh, he was a member of the Norwegian Singing Society, which was here in Bay Ridge. He invested his money in blue chip stocks. And when my cousin Laura sold, they had she sold the last house in Brooklyn. It was a three-family brick with a three-car garage. One day I have to find my mother's address book to look up this property. Because she sold it to a Chinese lady. So it's somewhere down in the Sunset Park area or somewhere that area, what I'm assuming. I don't remember the address. And I want to look it up because I'm curious to see what the property value is. And then a three-car garage, you, know, you can rent that for today? Just the, Not the apartments. You create more money for the renting of the garage because it's off-street parking than you can get for a apartment. So I find that one funny to, to look at that. But my Uncle Hark, like I said, he was also in the food business. And I have, to this day, I still have a Norwegian sweater uh, that his sisters knitted for him sometime in the 1950s. Okay. Is it a glusekofta? I know the word. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know the word. Yeah, okay. It, and, the, the Yitter came from one of the small islands, okay. somewhere in the coast. We, don't, we never really did much on them. Yeah. My mother was trying, when she was trying to do the family genealogy, we were able to do more on the Dangler family, because it was more laying around there, and she did some more work on the Larsons. Now, my father's mother was Inga Hansen, born in Bay Ridge. Wonderful. Inga Hansen, Bay Ridge, New York. Lots of them. We have no paperwork for her. Because when my grandmother, my Nana, as I called her, when she died in 1966, 
we finally found papers going through her box that gave her birth date. She had no birth certificate. She was 82 years old. So she might have been brought at home. We really, you know, so we, my, we were not able to do much research and nobody thought back in the 60s to sit down and talk with the people about things like that. And my grandfather Erickson, Einar Erickson was long gone. And uh, so the Erickson line, we have more on the family in Norway. Because my cousin's Erik, who was still living on the family farm in Kongsvinger, was able to take the family. There's so many records there and in the city. Yeah, the church books. The church books, the city yeah. records. So Pad has gotten us going back into like the 1720s. Yeah. Since we never really left the area, it's easier, you know. Um, but I said the coming here to Brooklyn was funny for me because, like I said, as a kid, it was just coming in visiting my cousins, and that was it. Yeah. Uh, my mother came, spent more time in the borough as a child, as a, growing up, because she would come in and visit. There was more family back then. She would come in and visit my cousin Laura, or as we always called her auntie, and then other relatives that lived in here, my cousin Irene and Helen, and things like that. So when I got the job in 1989. My family thought it was funny. I'm coming back. Of course. And as I started working here, it was June 12, 1989. And I started out as a library trainee. I was still going to library school. I had once, once, yeah. One semester left, that's right. It was June. I had the full semester. I graduated February. 1990. And I started working up in the, what was called the social science department, which was on the second floor at the front of the building. Of the, it's now part of Society Sciences and Technology. I worked up there with a woman named Madeline Kiner. She was my first boss. Maddie retired from BPL two years ago after 43 years of working in service here in the library. I went from, I worked in social science 89 to 92. We had a short layoff. I was actually laid off for a couple of weeks. I still had um, vacation time and everything, so I was still on the payroll. I was called back. I was one of two people brought back to here to Central. Myself and Lauren Williams. Lauren retired a couple of years, about two years ago also. And I went to Science and Industry, which was the next division down in the wing. My boss there was a man named Walter Wolf. Walter and I had a lot of fun because when he found out I was Norwegian, he was, Walter was Danish. He was born in Copenhagen. And Walter, um, he passed a few years ago, but it was interesting talking to him because he was part of that, the great evacuation during the war. He was one of the Jews, the Danish Jews that immigrated that were basically forced to evacuate in order to survive. And he moved, came, ended up here in Brooklyn and stayed here. And yeah, uh, so Walter and I had a lot of fun. Then I was promoted to become the division chief, is the title we used at that. I became the assistant division chief for the Education Job Information Center. And we were located in what is now the front end of the youth wing, the Ingersoll Room. 
Our office was the staircase. Lived on, we lived under the stairs where the TRS workroom is now, which is soon to become a public restroom and part of the book and part of the return area. Uh, I spent 10 years under the stairs, as it was my joke, in a Billy Goat rough. And uh, I laughed when I worked with a woman named Sheila Johnson. And then Sheila left to become a lawyer. And I ended up inheriting the department from her, basically. And I, it's 10 years, and I worked and did a lot of fun things there. In, the, in Egypt, we pioneered some of the first uses of technology here. Um, we had computers in the division, we got them early on, with CD-ROMs for jukebox, uh, CD-ROM jukeboxes, that was pre-internet now. Um, you know, we were not, the library was not wired until 19. We did not have a, a completely wired, the, the network and everything until the, the uh, late 90s. Uh, there's a number of different factors that go into that one. Part of it was New York Telephone, or 9X back then, did not wire the borough. The only digital switching center was located downtown Brooklyn. The rest of the borough was still analog. In fact, they was fined $70 million and forced to wire the borough. But uh, we had planned, we had kept us behind, so it was not until 97, 98 that we actually were able to wire the whole borough and bring up at least the first stages of the library's catalog and the circulation system. The internet didn't come until a little after that. In fact, 1997, EJIC, this is one of the many crazy events that I won't forget. I get a phone call from our director's office. The director at that time was a man named Martin Gomez. Martin uh, was, had come out of was, um, Chicago. Chicano boy, uh, grew up in his family, again, a room of immigrants, where we find it very funny. And Martini came from Chicago to here in uh, 1995, and we had already had a project going in one of the branches called Libraries Online. Donna Hubbard, who's one of our regionals, Donna was the branch librarian at Flatbush. Donna had the first 12 computers. We're talking inkjet printers next to each computer. And they had the Microsoft, all of Microsoft software. Library Sign project was um, spearheaded by Bill Gates. And it was to, to, get, library, to get technology into libraries. And Brooklyn was one of the earliest, we were part of that grant project. So I get a phone call from Martin. He says, come on upstairs. I'm like, okay. So I go up to his office. And um, Georgette Clark, who was the head of Central at that time, is sitting there, and Elizabeth Martin, who was the head of our facilities department, is there with me. And I'm like, we're going to ex expand the Libraries Online project in into Central. I'm like, great. And we're going to put it in Egypt. I'm like, okay. And we have to have it up and running. I'm like, what? In a month? Elizabeth and I are looking at each other, and we're like, okay, October. This is now September. We have to get the room wired and everything in one month. Why? Well, the donor is going to be in New York and wants to have a press conference. So Elizabeth and I come back downstairs, walk into the front end, into Egypt, look around the room, and the archway that's now open between us and the, between that room and the youth wing was blocked up at that point. Um, the reference desk was down back near that area. So we look at the front end of the room where the window is, which has nice bright sunlight, and we're like, okay, we'll put the computer cables here. We had four groups of four, we had 12 computers. So now it's like, we gotta get this wire. 
And the drilling turned out that we found out that the floor plans that say every 18 inches they're reinforcing beams is not correct. We broke, the, the guy doing the work broke the drills and we're talking drill bits that are about four or five inches in diameter. And that was fun. And we're doing this while the building is open too. <laughs> drilling holes in floors and trying to run a department. And so we get everything up, we get the tables in, we get the equipment in, and the day of the press conference, things are sort of working, but not really. Uh, we in, they, the publicity people from Microsoft want children sitting at the computers. So we get the youth wing, gets children's room, room gets a group of students, some kids from one of the local schools, I don't remember who now, to come in and put the, to sit down the computers. At that point, they're there. Um, what is now the Business and Career Center used to be the second floor meeting room. There's a luncheon going on up there in which Mr. Gates is there, Martin is there, Elizabeth Martinez, who was the executive director of the American Library Association, is there, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani is there, our borough president is there. Is Howie was still there? I think it was still Howard. Yeah, Howard Golden is still in, in, in power at that point. Um, and then the Brooklyn all the members of the Brooklyn delegation, City Hall, were there, and other invited guests. They all like they're they they're up there all day, and the security is insane now because you've got the world's richest man is here. And we're downstairs running around, fine tuning the room, putting it. And the publicity person, she's freaking out because all the shelves are not completely packed. I mean, usual shelves in a library are either two thirds to one half full. Yeah. So she's like, they all have to be filled. So we're taking books from the other end of the room and filling the rest of the shelves. And then she's freaking out because at the bottom of the floor, underneath the window, underneath the radiator, there is a gap of maybe three inches and there's nothing there. But you can't see it, but she's still freaking out. So we shove something there. And so we leave and they're finally setting up the TV cameras because this was being broadcast on the local television services. So they're setting them up at the back of the room in front of the blocked off archway. And then they've got chairs with all the, because all the furniture's been removed. There's seating for the board of trustees is there and all the other member of people there. I had forgotten something. So I go back in and they're like, what are you doing in here? I'm like, I just left something. So I grab whatever it is and ran out of the room. And then it times comes to get down to the, everybody coming in the room for the press conference. Now I had sort of had to fight with uh, people so that my, myself and my staff would be there in the room for the press conference. Yeah. And we said we, we weren't going to be seated, we were just going to go stand in the back. And we come in and I, I'm a press lady uh, whose name I do not remember, but we called her Miss Scarf. That was the politest phrases that we used to describe this woman. Was like, who are you? What are you doing here? Where did you get those passes? And now I've had, I've had it with her and running around, I've got this place. And I'm like, I, don't you remember me? I'm Mr. Erickson and this is my staff. We're the people who are going to make your project work. And I've got this look on my face, and the head of our, one of our marketing people, Donald Kaplan, looks at me. He's like, no, can't you come over here? And I'm like, yes. And I said, you can't. I said, I'm going to kill her. He says, you can't. You're going to have to join the line. Every, oh, she was a real pain. 
So we just, and he guns like, no, they're part of it. You can go in the back. So we're in the back. It turned out we had the best spot because we could see what was going on at the front of the room. Because the people who were seated couldn't because of all the newspaper reporters standing in front of them, all the cameras and the microphones and the whole bit. And everybody does all of their chatting and everything. And Mr. Gates is going on and on about how wonderful this whole project is and everything. And Mayor Judy Allen goes, could you finish up? I've got somewhere else to go. Now, the world's richest man had just been told by the mayor of New York City to shut up, basically, because he had some other, a more important thing to go. The more important thing was this. For most of us at that point, yes, there was something more important going on in that, after, that afternoon. The Yankees were in the series, and the first game was being played that <laughs> afternoon at Yankee Stadium, and Mayor Giuliani, being a rabid Yankee fan, as well as many of the people in this building, was going to be there for the first game and toss out the first game. We, we were laughing. After this whole, everybody leaves, Mr. Gates leaves, the, all the members of the city hall leave, um, Mr. Giuliani leaves, Martine turns to me and everybody says, come on upstairs, let's have a drink. <laughs> so we go up to the, at that time it was the director's office, now the Linda Johnson's the president CEO's office, and we had cocktail party. <laughs> you know, we're like, all right, we're just gonna hang out for the rest of the day and have a nice cocktail party, and you know, nibble on some food and talk to people, you know, and talk to, uh, Elizabeth Martinez about the project and everything. It was chaos. That was what that poll computer, the Ibrace Online project taught us a lot on what not to do and what we should do when we finally rolled out computers later on. Because we had 12 computers here in the Central Library with everything on it. Young adult, children's adult, and there's early internet access. And we had to hire staff just to monitor sign-ups and it was limited at that time half an hour and this is you had to come up to a desk sign in and then when the computer became available he demanded who was dumb and it was just rapid chaos turnover and it was like five years of insanity and that was one of the things we learned when we expanded the computers to the branches and the system we still had a manual sign-up system and all you were doing all day long was just monitoring computer time and that started, that was one of the things the staff was complaining about. Like, we can't do anything, nothing. We can't help the public for anything. Because all you're doing is dealing, you know, he got off the computer five minutes late. I want five minutes, you can't, and, you, and you're tight. You know, there was no extending sessions or anything like that. So that's what developed into now the, AB, the library card system. We originally called it the Access Brooklyn card system. And I was designed, was involved in the design of that. That was with um, Xerox and, um, Ferros Lighthouse, that's the actual company that, that wrote the software. And that was a godsend because we could let the public swipe their card, enter their PIN, and the computer would tell them what time your session, you know, your session is, you've got a 10 minute wait, and, you, and then when you're assigned now, go to computer number, whatever. Yeah. It saved a lot of our time and our sanity. And as part of the design project, we realize, so why don't we just make the whole thing just not only a library card to sign up your, for the computers, but to access our internet resources that became part of it. And then um, our director of finance at that time, John Vitale, uh, said, well, why don't we do it for cash handling? We can eliminate the problem of cash. Because there were, obviously, there was so much money floating around. People, 
very loose. You have the you know people paying fines. And things. So there was no records of fines being paid. Um, there was cash handling, cash loss. So by going totally cashless, we got rid of the ability to steal. The public had a record. We had a record of what fines were outstanding, what fines were paid, uh, and ability to track it all. So that saved, saved a lot of things there. Automation, and I watched a lot of it change over here. I still remember when the telephones were, were rotary. Yeah. When did you get rid of the catalog, the cards? Oh, the card catalog? The card catalog, when I got here in 89, we were in the middle of a project to create the digital catalog. Yeah. There was a process, a thing called MILKS. And it was a joint project between New York Public Library, Brooklyn Public Library, and Queensborough Public Library, now Queens Public Library. They changed their name, they dropped the borough. And what it was is from 1985 on, all the books that were bought were, the catalog records were electronic. Okay. And they had, but the thing is not every place had computers. There was five MILKS terminals in this building. Okay. One at the information desk, one at the social science desk, and three in the lobby. So in order for everybody else to figure out what we owned, we printed a book catalog, a paper book catalog that told you what we, and then when things were added to, we printed a supplement. And if it was published before 1985, you had to go to the old card catalog. So trying to find something was like almost impossible. Yeah. You know, it's like when you, you know, did we acquire anything? So um, we had the milk system for a number of years and milks, company went bankrupt. We had a very short beta testing, beta project of a company called Bibliophile. It was impossible to figure it out. It didn't last long. Then we went to a company called GIAC. And that was basically where we were able to really put all the data in the system, link the, the actual item record, for each bibliographic record, we were able to take the barcode of the book and link it to that record. So I would be able to sit down at the catalog and say, oh yes, now I know I'm supposed to own 50 copies of the autobiography of Malcolm X and 95 and 45 of them are checked out. Um, but we could see that then. Uh, that was, so it was 1997 is when the card catalogs were physically removed from this building. Because 1997 was the Brooklyn Public Library's 100th anniversary as an institution. So that's when we removed the card catalogs. But the original, the database that you're looking at now was created from the shelf list, which was the system-wide holdings that were part of the cataloging department. Cataloging was here in this building, moved off site in the 1970s to Montgomery Street, came back here in 1989. When they moved back here in 89, they disposed of their shelf list. But that shelf list is what we use to create the digital copy of the catalog that we have now. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was one of the, the most crazy projects, double barcoding books, because we still had a shelf list here. And we would go and barcode, when a new book came in, you would barcode, we were still doing a paper shelf list. And we had the, an electronic record, but we, not everybody access to it, so you still had to use the paper records. So you had to put a barcode on the shelf list card and on the book. <laughs> and then that data was later on transferred to electronic. It transferred manually by keying it in into the into the catalog records. Yeah, I linked. I must have linked over the years thousands of books in this building. 
between social science, science and interstate language and literature, education job information center, the periodicals department, um, art and music, history, I've linked thousands and thousands of books. They've also removed thousands of books from the years, yeah. over the years. Things that are just absolutely worn out, garbage, useless, and you know, yeah. no longer valid. So I have been staring at the catalog for decades. And you've also been meet, meeting people at the library yeah. a lot since 1999. How yeah. do, you, do you feel uh, like the visitors of the library has changed? Oh, yeah. The, visi the, the visitors here change a lot because the library... And when I talk to people about this, when I do my building tours, I always say that the library is a growing, changing, living institution because the books that my great-grandmother, Laura Larson, would have read and used in the early 20th century, first of all, she spoke both English and Old Norwegian, are useless today to the pers a person coming in the library now. The tastes in fiction are different. And any of the, if she was looking at a medical book, well, medical books, I'm sorry if the book is not, is basically we're down to the line thing, it's like medical books are two years. Medical libraries are going, medical and legal libraries are going, going almost 100% digital now. So the, the library's collection has to change, it has to grow, and it has to adapt to the populations. Now, I remember when the Multilingual Center was created in 1995, the language, we had thousands of books in the basement in languages. And um, Frank Shu, who's the in charge of the language and literature right now, the division manager there, was brought in as, for that project. And the woman who set up Multilingual Center, um, Tony Bessesser, or to use her formal title, Carmen Dolores Antonia Bessesser. And her joke was, we do expect me, I'm a short, fat, fat, pushy Puerto Rican Jew from the Bronx. That was Tony's line. <laughs> uh, but Tony and Frank looked at the stuff downstairs and they said, this is old. This is not what people are going to come in for. There were thousands of German books down there. There are no more Germans in, the, in Brooklyn. I'm sorry, we're gone. The Norwegian books, there's nobody here reading those languages. We did not have a large collection of Chinese and in Hindi, Urdu, uh, all of the South Asian languages. So we had to buy those materials. And we had Russian, yeah, because Brighton Beach become Russian by that point. But we had to change the languages to match the immigrant group that they're coming in now. Like I said, the languages change because the immigrant groups change. So the library's collection has to match what people... And this building, when it opened in 1941, was a research reference library. So the collections were geared for that purpose. We had standing orders with university presses all across the United States and many in Europe. We had things like advances in plastics technology and other crazy sciences. In fact, some of the stuff I was reading in science and industry, I didn't know what the words were. There were weird sciences, science fields. Now, I don't have that great of a background in science. I know some in chemistry, some biology, and some, but I'm like, what is this? I understand it's a study of, because of the word ology, <laughs> but they were there, but at one time we had a population for it. But we had to get rid of it because it was no longer used. It was not worth keeping. 
Now when you go up to the side, the Society of Science and Technology, <clears throat> a larger or heavy use up there is not very scholarly medical texts, but practical medical books for the people who are studying to become a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a physician's assistant. So that's what we're going to buy now. History, we're still constantly playing around what's in the demand, but there's still a heavy demand um, for all kinds of history up there. Languages and literature, we, we watch this, the rise and fall of authors. I remember my first time I ever picked up what we called urban fiction and reading the back of the book and like, okay, this is rather amusing. Um, but there was no such a genre as urban fiction 30 years ago. You know, that's a whole new world. When I were in here in periodicals, you know, we had $100,000 budget for magazines. But that was pre-internet. And we needed these, we needed the paper copies of the journals. Now I think I'm working on 12,000. Well, we have JSTOR, art store. You know, academic abstracts, the Gale Virtual Reference Library. All of these things that we now have in electronic format, we used to buy paper. Gale is a big publishing house out in the Midwest, and they do excellent um, reference books. But I don't need the physical copy anymore because we have a, you can buy an electronic subscription, and that's what people are using. When I worked in language and literature, we had the for four students theories, which are literary criticism. Kids from Clara Barton would come over, and we would and we all we would the teachers would call us, but they let me have it already ready for the kids when they came in. So now they don't, we don't see them because they're accessing those texts online. Because yeah. after I left Egypt, I came over to the, across the lobby into periodicals, periodicals, micro-materials. I also oversaw the, tel the telephone reference department. And we were attempting to design a general reference collection that we would have worked out of here. That sort of didn't work. Uh, but we had the computers in here and telephone reference. We used to be a premier fact-checking. Okay. That was what we did, you know, and you had to quote your source. Yeah. Now we have the call center. We don't have a physical book in there. Yeah. We do it all electronically. Yeah. And fact-checking? That's not much done anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's great because telephone, Martin Dooley, who was the head of telephone reference when I got here, um, and retired, and I took it over after he left. Martin just said, "Yeah, parties at Christmas, you know, Christmas time. They used to have great parties out there because all the publishers and all these companies that they used to do fact checking for in, in Manhattan would send them packages of Christmas gifts with food, candies, and all. And they said, "Yo, come on up. We got you know, oh, Vogue, you know, Condé Nast just sent us a package of goodies, and this is where they get the fact checking." Uh, floating around the collection, there are still books that we have in the Brooklyn collection. I kept many of them in history where they annotated the books. We put notes in, keep things up to date, and clippings would be attached in them. And they had, we had massive clipping files in Telref. And sometimes that was the only way we could find things. Uh, the 1962 plane crash that of the yeah. two plane that happened here in Park Slope. Yeah, yeah. The, for many years, the only format, the only information we had was the newspaper clippings that were clipped out of the newspaper by the telephone reference staff in 1962. Yeah. Uh, from newspapers that no longer exist because they went out of business in 1966. 
when the uh, newspaper strike of 1966 would wipe out most of the city's papers. Yeah. Telephone reference, that was, they were very early on, the staff to first really heavily used the internet yeah. for, to substitute, at, not as, later on it became a complete replacement for the printed books, but we would, they would be searching both um, the books and the internet. We used to have a subscription to LexisNexis up there yeah. so that they could access certain information that people needed. Uh, that was also our, the staff there helped design the very first BPO webpage in 1997. Uh, I remember Abigail doing that one. That was a fascinating, fun project. First, Pam Bloomfield, who's in IT and web apps, Pam and I, as she worked with me in Education Information Center, we wrote the first BPL internet use policy. Um, Telref, like I said, the they started with the internet. We used to, they, we maintained lists of websites because this was pre-Google, pre-search engine days. So you, there were printed books of websites. And we were laughing at that, you know. By the time it came into print, things <laughs> were gone. But we would have to do manually. We had to. I don't even remember the searching process back then. It's been so long. And we used to maintain lists of websites that we would that we verified as credible and that we would trust. Um, there's a, there was a thing that uh, was done profession, nationwide, the Internet Library, uh, that we, all librarians around the country shared the data and the information, and that's now been archived, yeah. uh, hasn't been up, dealt with in years. But they also was the first um, chat was there. And that was under my days when I was running telephone reference. And back then, we had a single librarian doing chat. And you had to sign, we had chat hours at very specific times. We were not part of a consortium. We were doing it here alone. And you had to download software to your computer before you could even start it, which was cumbersome. Yeah. So needless to say, it didn't work too well. And we, after about two years of that, we are like, this is not working. Uh, then started looking around and we realized that in order for chat reference to really work, you have to be part of a consortium. And that's when we ended up going on with Question Point, which is our platform for both chat and email. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel proud when you look at the library now? Oh yeah. Uh, through it, all this? <laughs> I know, you know, the information commons. I, yeah. this, was a, this was a magnificent room, you know, space here. And uh, this, used to be tele this used to be the periodicals room. And we had 35 computers in here, 10 microfilm readers, uh, bound periodicals, the circulating periodicals, other, uh, we had more periodicals in red binders on the shelves, the current issues of things. We had new books in here. We had holds pick up in here. And it was a junkyard. And Rich raised Gavilon, who is now the director of DC Public Library. And Rich came over as our head of Central a number of years back. Rich walked in here and looked. He said, "Is this your prime real estate?" And it looks like a dump. I'm like, "Yeah, it does look like a dump. We have mismatched furniture, a horrible looking space." And he's like, "We got to do something better." So Rich got this idea, of, you know, the information comments, which we're seeing now. And we're like, "Yeah, we should really have." You know, we need more space for technology. We needed places for people to sit down and plug in. Because early on, we didn't have outlets in the departments. Right? We only got outlets in all the rest of the building only in the last two years. Yeah. And we used to joke about, wow, I got power, I'm happy. 
Um, so Richard Slagman looked at this whole thing. He came up with an idea, realized that they looked around, found the Leon Levy Foundation, and he did this on his own before he, and pitched it to them. And they said, here, we'll give you 50 grand. Design it. If we like it, maybe we'll fund it. They liked it. They funded it. Three and a half million. Just like that. The youth wing, again, mismatched clutter. Oh God, it was horrible walking through there. Um, the reference desk was against, the, the children's reference desk was against the windows back where the nannies all sit now. And it, you could, the bookcases were over across from them and the seating was all scattered. And it was like a traffic, oh, traffic back there. It's horrible during the afternoon, people piling. And again, uh, Martin Gomez looked at that and said, we need a better space. And the kids need their own computers. The teens need their own computers. Uh, little children need their own computers because with having one back, only 12 computers where everybody used it, you have all kinds of problems. Um, so like, we've got to separate the adults from the children, from the teens. We said, looked at that, we said, that's it. We'll redo that whole room. Uh, that was the year 2000. That was a two and a half million dollar project. One million dollars came from a woman who died, left us, a, she lived across the street, and she left us a million dollars in her will. The other million came from a bunch of other sources. Half a million came from Brooke Astor. Uh, in 1999, I was sitting at the reference desk in Education Job Innovations, which was the front end of the room there. And I look up and I see, oh, that's right, we have a visitor today. Martin Gomez. Well, it's Evan Kingsley, Deputy Director of External Affairs. Then followed by Martin Gomez, the Executive Director of the Brooklyn Public Library. Then standing next to him is Sophia Sequenzia, the Deputy Director of Public Service. And then standing next to Sophia is Mrs. Brooke Astor. And I do it in that order because the joke is it's literally in height order. Because from the very tallest Evan all the way down to Mrs. Astor, who's all about five foot. And Mrs. Astor is standing there in the black Chanel dress, the elbow length black gloves, the purse, the patent leather purse, matching shoes, and the hat. No entourage, nothing. It's just her. That was the year she decided that I'm close, she was going to close down the Vincent Astor Foundation. She had to get rid of $72 million. And we reached out. Devin was in charge of all of our uh, external affairs, our fundraising, marketing, development, and all of that at that point. And they're talking, and she's like, oh. and they, she says, well, how much do you need to finish off the project? And Martin says, oh, about a half a million. And Mrs. Astor's like, okay, it's yours. Later on, Martin and Evan were saying, we should have asked for more. You know, <laughs> just like that. Oh, it's yours, half a million. And they're like, ah. <laughs> And just like that is yours. That was one of our fun ones. Uh, 97 was the library's 100th anniversary. We had our first gala here in the lobby. We cleared out the catalogs of that. We replaced the um, checkout desks, the new ones there. And the, for the number of years that the galas were held here in Brooklyn, in the library building, we honored individuals from Brooklyn in each subject division. Subject division chief was there at the party at the gala that night and they got to escort whoever the honoree was. And one time Evan Kingsley made arrangements for the library management, the staff here in Central and others, to 
can meet two of the honorees. And this is a point that, remember staff standing upstairs in the trustees room, I was in Egypt, running Egypt at that point, and standing around and having a, a cocktail party type of thing, you know, and being introduced and being able to talk a little with both Lena Horn and Shirley Chisholm. Okay. It was just one of those things, like, yeah. these are two very famous women. Yeah. And I'm standing here having cocktails with them and talking to them. Wow. Uh, but the night, the first gala was a riot. Um, the periodicals room was the staging area for the food service. The invited guests are sitting in the lobby. The staff that worked on the project, we were all on tables on the balcony. And the first RMC was Harvey Fierstein. And Harvey's up there being Harvey and having fun. And every person that came up, they're talking about their memories of coming to the Central Library or using the Brooklyn Public Library as a kid. And it's going on and you, you being introduced to books, the whole thing, the first time. Yes. Well, Harvey's memories of the Central Building, when he said them, we were like, oh my God, he just said that, didn't he? Mr. Fierstein's memories of the Central Library was cruising for sex in the second floor men's room. <laughs> I'm sitting there with a colleague of mine who at that time worked for Brooklyn Historical Society and other members, and we are upstairs. We're now busting a gut in hysterics. We're like, Carvey just said that, didn't he? And some of the people, I'm just trying to figure out what some of the people on the main floor are like reacting to. <laughs> you know, like, okay, did he just say that? You know, we, we thought that was right. Yeah. One of our more funnier pieces. Um, we had... The 50th anniversary of the Central Library event was a year late. We did it in 92, 91. And that was held out on the plaza. We unveiled a pastel painting, a pastel drawing of the Central Library. Bill um, Creevy, who was in our marketing department, was a pastel artist, and he did it. And that was fun. It was sort of informal, crazy little thing. And people really coming in and it was held we had a formal presentation out the back there and borough president proclamation the usual things the guest speaker that day was wendy wasserstein and we're killing time because her she's stuck in traffic <laughs> and they're waiting for the guest of honor to show up so we can't start and people are milling around and i'm talking to a couple of people I'm like well who's sitting where I'm, nobody we don't have a formal seating chart well who's what Oh, well, that's so-and-so. Well, go over and introduce yourself. Go sit him over there. We're standing there in front of the podium, not realizing the microphone is on. She <laughs> 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 know the microphone was on. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> well, I'm like, now what are we doing? <laughs> uh, that was our, that's how I ended up as the Central Library, sort of the unofficial library in Central. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've been talking for almost an hour. Oh, my so, God. Uh, I usually ask this question if you have something to say to future generations here in Brooklyn, maybe if you have something to say about, you know, Brooklyn libraries, how you... The future of Brooklyn? Yeah. Oh my god. Maybe how do you think the libraries can, like, meet like the future? Well, everybody keeps saying this, everything's going to be totally digital. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of people here. But there's still, you know, there's still, there's still, well, I'm a historian, I'm a 19th century social yeah. historian, so I'm... I, for me, I love you know working with paper and everything. But when I find 
a new electronic database I can get lost in for hours with new materials. So you see, on I, I go back and forth. But in the future, we really don't. You know, we keep. That's a big debate. Yeah. What is going to be the library of the future? And the within the profession, we're always back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and we really don't know where we're going to go. You can't. It's very hard to figure it out. Um, the one thing that I see and that I'm afraid of for the future is that when everything is totally, if everything does go totally electronic and digital, what will be our archival historical record? Because if you don't have electricity, nothing works. And having done archaeological work, um, I excavated a front, <laughs> a front lawn out on Mount Sinai and was found a home, a habitation from one of the uh, Long Island native peoples. And I was sitting there digging out the remains of their house. You know. yeah. And our future, if it's totally digital and you don't have electronics, we don't know what the life of the CD is either. I remember buying the first CD player, and I still have it. The very first CD Sony made. I used to sell electronics back in the 80s. <laughs> and it still plays. Oh, it does. It still works. That's good. Uh, but it's just a really interesting question. What will be our historical record in the future? Yeah. Um, is there anything else, uh, any specific experiences or events over the years that stayed in your oh mind? Oh, there's just, you know. <laughs> well, like I said, the Harvey win was probably the craziest yeah. one I've ever had. But like I said, but meeting Lena Horan, uh, seeing Mrs. Astor, yeah. um, having Rudy tell you know, Mr. Gage to shut up. Yeah. Those have always stuck in my head. It's like, <laughs> I love it. Um, you know, th there's just been so many funny little things going on over here in the years. Uh, yeah. the, the public I work with, the people I work with, I never know what's going to happen. Um, I have met so many amazing people that I've just to walk in the door. I never know what the what 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 somebody's gonna ask me what they're gonna want. Um, I've had some fun conversations with people. Yeah. I've had some really difficult conversations with people trying to get somebody to understand something that no, your behavior is inappropriate, and that's very that's the hardest thing to do. Yeah. Um, in the librarians and the clerks and the staff of this library, we've shared so much together. February nineteen. Sorry. February nineteen ninety. Yeah. My father was killed. What do I do? The staff here helped me come through that. Yeah. Maddie Kiner called me one morning to tell me that her husband had died that day. We were there for her. I watched Pam Bloomfield raise three kids. I did her baby showers. <laughs> Pam and IT, their daughters are in their 20s and a son's in their, like, we've watched each other, we've watched families, we've watched kids get born, marry, go to college. Um, here in periodicals, Bob Hayes, who was sort of a fixture for BPL for many, many years. Um, 
When Bob died, that was a shock to all of us. But again, we came together. His wife, Judah Carter, Judah Carter Hayes. Judah was a single mother, had a son, and she was transferred into periodicals. It was Bob's assistant. Bob's like, what do I need her for? Well, needless to say, two years later, they became, they were married. <laughs> um, and we always laugh at that one. But we watched all of ourselves, you know, we'd grow together, we'd play together, we'd go together to events and things like that. It's just an amazing group of people to work with. And I've had fun doing things. I've had some strange experiences that I never want to repeat. <laughs> but it's just, the BPL has been a family for me for 30 years. I never expected to stay here. Yeah. And it's just a very strange situation. Yeah. And now I'm falling into the role that Maddie did. She was my mentor. And now I'm doing it the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cycle. And I've worked with interns. You guys, they're listening to my stories. I had a couple of summers, a couple of years, a couple of summers back with some high school students down. I had so much fun. And trying to explain to them computer technology from 1988 was a riot. <laughs> they're looking at me like, you're lying, right? Like, no, I'm not. That's what a Vic Commodore computer did. <laughs> but it's just another world. Yeah. And I don't know how many more years I'm going to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Next year I'll be 60. Um, You'll have to have a celebration when you've been here 30 years. Oh, the 30, yeah. yeah. Next year I'll be 60 in March, and my 30th anniversary is June. Yeah. And my partner and I have been together 13 years. Yeah. Let me shut up in my life five years after my mother died. Yeah. <laughs> And the two of us, we, he has, he's been here, library must say if you know him. And on the side, on the sideline, the two of us run our own, it's a small business ad hoc on the peddling antiques and uh, re repurposing old vintage lamps and fabrics and selling jams and jellies that he makes. I ain't got a show tomorrow. <laughs> Go home tonight, pack the car, drive the show, he'll be out in North Fork. They know us out there yeah. with the jams and jelly guys. <laughs> But yeah, I never, like I said, I never thought I'd be here this long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's been uh, really amazing to hear yeah. you talk about, you know, the library and also <laughs> your family going yeah. back so long. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, thank you so much. It's funny to realize that now I'm part of a record so much. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you, thank guys. You again. I've enjoyed okay. it. Yeah. <laughs>